watchers in the fourth dimension. The doctor was a great collector, wasn't he? But you're the doctor. Welcome to the TARDIS. Thank you. You're doing so well impersonating me. Uh... The time has come for you to change your appearance, Doctor, and begin your exile. Hello and welcome to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. I'm Riley. And I'm Alan. And this episode, we are coming to you live from Hulanta Virtual TARDIS 2021 to bring you our Patrick Troughton era retrospective. You may have once again noticed Alan's voice in there, and he's returning to us to moderate the discussion. As was the case last time when we did one of these retrospectives, Alan will ask us a series of questions. The biggest difference this time around is since this panel was streamed live, we will also, time permitting, be taking some questions from the fine folks watching this live on Hulanta's Facebook page. So this should be quite fun and somewhat unpredictable. So with all of that, Alan, over to you, my friend. All right. So I have a series of questions for the four of you. They're going to be really intense and very tough. So put your thinking caps on. And for the audience, we'll be taking questions as long as there's time at the end. Hopefully there will be. We'll take some audience questions as well. So let's get started. Having completed two doctors now, what are some of the differences in tone and style that you see in the second doctor's tenure from the first? Essentially, how has the show evolved over the course of six seasons and two very different approaches to the title character? Well, I mean, obviously, the first thing is that the show at the beginning had that educational background, and it felt like you're being taught a history lesson. And with the second doctor, that is not the case at all. <laughs> like a complete change. I think of the first doctor as like a college professor. The second doctor is like a manic genius. <laughs> We've learned nothing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> nothing exactly. It's yeah, it's that's a major change. And also because of that, it's less formal and it's more of like a zany action comedy kind of feel at times on the second doctor compared to the first. Mm -hmm. The second doctor is also just a lot more fun. Mm -hmm. He seems to be a lot more willfully involved in the action and willing to, to more step up and be a hero. I agree with a lot of that because there's a lot more deliberate storytelling in the first Doctor with their, your historicals or specific types of science that they're trying to do. And the second Doctor is much more fun, but it also falls into a lot more tropes. So base under siege for season five, since it didn't really have that structure of, hey, we're doing this historical, it was more of a, hey, we just came up with this monster and we're going to have a story about it. It just fell into base under siege over and over again. So there's some downfalls to it, but it was a lot of fun because he's zany. So it doesn't matter. <laughs> And I think with the Troughton era, the show becomes a lot more self-aware, particularly by season six. So each Troughton season is different. As Julie mentioned, season five becomes predominantly based under siege. By season six, it's kind of returning more to some of that experimental side of storytelling that you see in the early Hartnell era. But it's almost referencing itself, particularly if you look at something like The Seeds of Death, which is Troughton's greatest hits. You've got the foam machine, you've got base under siege, you've got, you know, the TARDIS crew goofing around in the foam and by the end with the war games at one point that even turns into a reverse base under siege with the doctor and friends being the ones besieging the base i think not only is it different in tone to the hartnell era but the end of the troughton era is very different in tone to the beginning mm. okay let's talk about the impact that troughton had, had on the series itself and this is going to require a little bit of a setup so most of the later classic doctors cited troughton as an influence on their performance as the doctor matt smith famously found a connection with the Troughton Doctor when coming up with a look and personality for his own Doctor. Colin Baker has repeatedly said that if it hadn't been for Troughton's brilliance, the show would not have achieved the longevity that it did. 
in 2013 for the show's 40th anniversary, there was a documentary special called The Story of Doctor Who. And in describing the change from Hartnell to Troughton, Annika Wills, who was a companion for both of them, said, quote, when Pat came on board, that's when the fun started to happen and the magic started to be made. So I'm curious to know, what's your reaction to these assessments? Well, don't get me wrong. I love the first Doctor, but Troughton's performance he makes the Doctor more relatable, I think, to the audience and less alien. And I think that also has something to do with the fact that the first Doctor, he kind of operates and is written as almost like a mysterious force of nature, while second Doctor Troughton humanizes the character a bit more. The first Doctor is like your grandfather. The second Doctor is like your crazy uncle that will let you get away with stuff, <laughs> even if it gets you hurt. But when talking about his impact on future doctors, it can't be understated because everyone that's followed him has either tried to emulate what he did or take bits of it, be it from just his quirky mannerisms or a musical instrument, spoons, for example, later on, or they try to play it as a contrast to him. So even though he wasn't the first, he really did set the template of what the doctor would look like going forward. I completely agree with that. And I think the one time you see someone do something different is with Peter Capaldi, who tends to channel Hartnell more than any doctor since Troughton. Mm -hmm. I think Troughton and his portrayal of the character was critical because it was the first time the show had done a change. And in the hands of a lesser actor, it would have died there and then. And bringing in an actor of that caliber really ensured that, yeah, okay, the show is different, but it will survive. I also think by that point, they had learned some things about some companions and the fact that they had very strong companions with the second Doctor, I think also helped because you had Barbara and Ian with the first Doctor and they were good, but some of the other ones were a little bit weaker and up. Oh, Except for Vicky. Except Vicky, for Vicky. Vicky's a queen, <laughs> so don't get me wrong. But there there were quite a few flops, so to speak. But when we got to the second Doctor, when we got Jamie on board and we got Zoe on board, those are probably some of the strongest pairings of companions that we'd had in a long time. And I think that also helps as well, because if you don't have a strong supporting cast, then it's not going to work as well. I also think that even in the second Doctor era, the acting overall was better, not just from the main cast, but some of of the guests that they got were really, really good. And you had some repeating people just because of the strong portrayal. So I think that it wasn't just the doctor himself who helped with the template, but everything surrounding it has helped as well. Yeah, that's a good point. I do take a little bit of issue and I realize it's probably not the way Annika intended it, but there's something very, very magical for me about the first doctor's era in general. Mm -hmm. It feels very different. It feels kind of innocent and it's not afraid to do something Something zany. Now, I understand that what Annika's referring to is probably the behind the scenes chemistry and that Troughton was probably easier to get along with than Hartnell. But I love that Hartnell era and it's a joy for me to watch. And to Annika's point, she was involved in his later episodes and not the second season, which I think is one of the strongest seasons of the entire mm -hmm. run of the show. But moving on. So as you move out of Hartnell and into Troughton, you start to encounter some major problems, and that is swaths of missing episodes. It's famously known that the Troughton era is woefully incomplete with many episodes and entire stories missing from the BBC archives. So I'm curious to know when you're doing a marathon of this era, how does that impact? 
affect the way that you're perceiving things. And in particular, using, we have like either reconstructions that use still photography and the soundtrack, or we have animations of a complete story. Which is your preference? And how does that sort of affect the way that you view the Troughton era? I am hands down an animation person. I need visuals. I need movement on screen. And for the most part, the animations have been really well done. There's a few issues with some of them. Fury from the Deep, they have really weird arms. <laughs> that was really bizarre. And they've had to make some adjustments, but sometimes the adjustments are really good. The Macro Terror, I think the monsters in that actually probably looked better in the animation. <laughs> but to that end, I think that animation, since we don't get the originals, is definitely the way to go. On occasion, I've done a contrast, so I've watched some without the animation, but I really think that the animation just helps move the story along. Yeah, I would have to agree. At the same time, I think we're living in the best possible time to be able to experience these stories that have been lost. You do have the reconstructions, and even though they can be sometimes a bit of a slog to work through, they are significantly better than nothing. You have the animations that are coming out. If you really want to, you can read the books, which are also very good. So you've got a whole bunch of different options and ways to experience the lost stories and how much you enjoy certain stories, I think it's going to depend on which avenue you choose. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I started getting involved in organized fandom about 20 years ago, and the only way to experience these was either through the narrated audio from the BBC or through increasingly ropey fifth generation VHS tapes of the loose cannon reconstructions, which were in a very early stage, so they weren't nearly as polished as they are now. And I think, Don, talking about this being the best possible time, you look at the DVD release or Blu-ray release of something like the Macro Terror, you've got color animation, black and white animation, you've got a recon that you can watch with or without narration on it. And there are just so many ways now of experiencing these stories. And it's almost like choose your own path, which one works best for you. And I think the only issue with the animations, and for some people, it's more of an issue than for others, is they make some creative choices that might be liberties with the stories. I know when uh, in the earlier panel with the animators and Chris Chapman, someone mentioned about the rough and tumble scene being taken out of the Macro Terra infamously. And fandom was in outrage. And, you know, yeah, but equally, if you want that scene, you can watch the recon that's on the same disc. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is a golden time for missing Doctor Who, if there ever has been such a thing. I agree completely with everyone. Just I like the idea of the choose your own adventure method. You want the reconstructions, you know, you want to just try to like see some stills and try to piece it together in your mind what it might look like or just go for the animation. It's fine. There you go. One of the things that sort of is a hallmark of the Troughton era is sort of the rise of more monster villains rather than humanoid villains. How do you think that that changes the tone of the show and the way that it speaks to the audience? I think it makes it awesome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's just my thing. I just, I, I love I love the monsters. I do so much. And in all seriousness, it helps. The show is supposed to be incredibly large, as large as the universe. So when you end up having a run of villains that are human beings that are oftentimes being a bit hammy, you know, <laughs> just a tad, it's good to have something that's really out there and exception to that. And no disrespect to my boy Tobias Vaughn. He's, I will not disrespect him. <laughs> 
I will I will stand by him every day of the week. But yeah, it's funny you say that because I think ironically, I think some of the better villains are the humanoid ones. So you got Enemy of the World, which yeah. is one of the best villains. You got the War Games, which are more humanoid, and and the Invasion with Bond. So I think it's funny that you have all of these monsters, and I think it's good for the show to expand and be bigger, but they just haven't quite gotten there to where they can make the monsters the better villains. Mm. That's true, because when they're bringing in actors like Kevin Stoney or Philip Madoc, and they can chew the scenery and be hammy, if we're going to go there, Riley, <laughs> fine, they can be a little bit hammy. But at the same time, the way they interact with Troughton, because if they go loud and over the top, he'll go quiet. Yeah. There's always contrast, and that's always just amazing to watch. Whereas with the monsters, you get things like the quirks, which <laughs> don't fit tonally within the story at all, and then you think that they lost doing another story because they were arguing about licensing rights, and it, it just gets kind of sad and funny. <laughs> And I think having a very monster-heavy era in general makes those human villains pop a bit more. They stand out mm. from the crowd mm -hmm. because they're different from what you're watching every week. And on, on top of that, I think the one big problem with having an actor of the caliber of Troughton is there aren't many people who can rise to his level. The first really good humanoid villain was also played by Patrick Troughton. <laughs> Right, exactly. <laughs> and by the time you get to season six, and Don mentioned you bring in someone like Kevin Stoney, Philip Maddock, Edward Brayshaw, they have to raise their performance. And those are really good actors, but there aren't many people who can mm. do it to that level. The other side of this question is that you see the change from what we just talked about, but we also see another big change in the show in that we sort of drop historicals by the wayside. How does that change the tone of the show? And do you think that was a good idea? Should they have done that? Should they have done more historicals? Riley. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> I'll go next. Okay, yeah. I am notorious for not being a huge fan of the historicals. I feel like it really limits the plot a lot because obviously there's certain things they can and cannot do because it is historical record and you can't change what has happened and that is difficult. And... <sighs> It's like I said, so it just, it just limits the show, I think, tremendously. And not to say that there haven't been historicals that I've really enjoyed, but I was very happy that they branched out and went in another direction and avoided those. So that's my most politically, you know, political <laughs> way of responding to that answer. And me being on the opposite side of the spectrum, who loves historicals with being a history buff and things of that nature. I do think with one of the few historicals that they had in the Troughton era with the Highlanders, they did it in such a way that you can tell a story and not know what the outcome is because they just took the era, but then they focused on people that like weren't real. <laughs> they were just like, let's exactly. just make things up and it's set in this timeline. And yes, okay, the Battle of Culloden actually happened, but they didn't focus on, oh, well, we're going to focus on Bonnie Prince Charlie. That would have been a mistake. But I think that if they want to continue with historicals, do it in that kind of context where, okay, we're in this era, maybe this one thing happened, but let's not touch any major historical person. Let's go with some brand new characters and tell a brand new story. They can do any story they want, but they can use the BBC costume archives to do whatever <laughs> they need to. 
Exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I I think it's a real shame that the pure historical is more or less a relic of the Hartnell era. There's a moment at the beginning of the war games where if you're not familiar with that story, you almost think it's going to be a pure historical. And then, of course, it massively veers to the right. And again, this comes into that story very cognizantly looking back on Doctor Who. You know, the Highlanders was Troughton's second story and it was his only pure historical. And we almost parody that towards the end by bringing in a story that for a moment you think is going to be a pure historical. I enjoy the Hartnell pure historicals. They're not all to my taste. I mean, I massively prefer the Romans to the Massacre, for example, but everyone has their preferences. Would they have worked more in the Troughton era? Maybe, maybe not. You know, I think Big Finish probably do a couple that stand out set in the Troughton era. So there's always a way to experience that kind of thing, even though the show at the time moved away from it. Every time that you guys do a review an episode, you give it a rating. And I've planned this question, but I had not updated my info because you have now done the war games and I don't know what your score is for that. So the way that I'm going to say this is at the time that I came up with this question, your ratings had given four Troughton stories the highest rating of any of the ones that you've seen so far, but also the two lowest ratings of any of the stories that you'd watched so far. So I'm curious to know if you find the Troughton era to be more or less consistent overall than the Hartnell era. Consistent? See, I would say it's not as strong as the Hartnell because it is such a wide gap. You know, like the Space Pirates is really bad. The Dominator (laughs) is really bad. But you've got Enemy of the World, the Mind Robber, which are just Mm. such phenomenal stories. But I would say my least favorite Hartnell is probably the Sensorites. Uh, Riley, you're wrong. Um, (laughs) It's still... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> nowhere nowhere as bad as the space pirates or or some of those others so it's not as consistent but you do have better stories and i think season six in particular is perhaps the most wildly inconsistent because those two stories you reference alan were for us the dominators and the space pirates but then on the other side of the spectrum you have the mind robber the invasion the war games you look at season five which is the base under siege season very very consistent and that season Mm -hmm. was when they were trying to sell the show abroad and sell it for syndication in the US. So they tried to keep it a bit more samey so that it's much easier to tune into an episode and understand what's going on. So I think season six at the end of the day is where the Troughton era really does get inconsistent. It's kind of fun though, because you see those really, really incredibly high highs and the lows, and it's tempting to pick a certain director or a certain writer to blame for it. But you'll find that those really, really great episodes are either directed or written by the same people that gave you the Dominators or something like that. And it's just like, (laughs) what happened? Were you having a bad week? It just doesn't, it doesn't quite gel. But that's the fun of season six compared to season five. Mm. Season five had a lot of really, really good episodes. But if you're going through it like we were, it gets kind of old because you can just see the blanks being filled in every time. At least with six, some of the stories were crappy, but they were different. Yeah, yeah. It was the best of Cybermen. It was the worst of Quarks. (laughs) 
again, to Don's point, you look at season six and you have a director like David Maloney who directed three of the stories and he directed The Mind Robber and The War Games. But then he also directed The Crotons, which wasn't a bad story, but it doesn't look anywhere near as good as the other two. Mm-hmm. As an example. Yeah, good point. All right. So let's talk about companions. The second Doctor era is pretty unique in that it's one of the only times in the show's history that we have a doctor and a companion who were together for pretty much the entire run. Jamie comes in in Broughton's second story, stays for the entire three years, and they leave together. So you've got these three seasons of a doctor and a companion together. So I want you to talk a little bit about that central relationship between the doctor and Jamie and how you think the two characters grow and change because of each other. All right, Julie, you handle this. <laughs> right. We'll get something to drink. We're going down the pub while you talk on this I gave one. A, I gave a historical question to Riley, so now here's a Jamie question for Julie. <laughs> you know, well, it's, it's really interesting because, and I know this probably goes into another question that we might possibly get, but I think it fits in with this one, is that Jamie is from non-modern times but he very quickly just moves with it he's like oh it's an airplane takes two seconds to be freaked out by the airplane and then he's like all right moving on and choosing that kind of character who's just able to ebb and flow with what's going on really helps establish him as a really good companion because if he's just constantly being like bombarded with new things and is either terrified or confused all the time then it just gets very old but you have jamie who is an action-oriented person person. He's always wanting to get into the midst of the fight, um, which is something that maybe the doctor isn't necessarily wanting to do. So you kind of have the doctor with the smarts on the one side and the action person on the other side. But when you get them together and their banter is really what sells everything. It's it's mm-hmm. Jamie giving the doctor crap. The doctor consistently saying, wait a minute, Jamie, wait a minute, Jamie, when you really should have been listening to Jamie because Jamie had the right idea. And it just comes across as them having this really good relationship because they're able to mess with each other and laugh and just have a good time. And that's really important. Once Jamie showed up, you could tell that Ben was not going to be on the show for much longer. Mm-mm. Because his <laughs> character trait of not trusting or disagreeing with the Doctor, which while it worked really well in the macro, or it would have had the macro existed... <laughs> After a certain point, it just got a little old, but Jamie could provide just enough contrast to have that edge, and yet they work so well together on screen. So after that point, Ben's character was no longer needed, and they just kind of, kind of, you know, drifted away from that. Yeah, and I think to that point, Troughton and Fraser Hines made such a fantastic double act. It's very hard to imagine Patrick Troughton with a different male companion, and it's very hard to imagine Jamie with a different dog. I know eventually we do see him briefly alongside the sixth doctor, but those two, their performances together were just on another level from anything we'd seen on the show before. And there's a level of physical comedy between them that just really shines through. You know, you you have scenes Mm -hmm. like I always come back to Tomb of the Cybermen. You're thinking of Tomb of the Cybermen. (laughs) I'm no? thinking of the invasion okay. when they get right. into Tobias Vaughn's the car. car and, and mm, yeah. Jamie car. hops through into the front seat. Well, there's also <laughs> the time in Evil of the Daleks when the doctor's like, don't knock everything over. And then he immediately <laughs> knocks something over and Jamie catches it. <laughs> yeah. So. I had always thought, how would it have been if it was just the doctor and Jamie mm. without any other companion? I think it would have worked. 
Yeah, I yeah, think it would have worked. worked. But I mean, would have just would they had to expand it to more than just the banter, or would they have had to create more between them of some sort of like something else, like a clearer friendship? I don't know, but it's just interesting. I think it would have worked for a story or two, but not on okay. an ongoing basis. But if any Doctor Companion, I think they would last the longest as being alone together because I tend to, now after seeing Jamie and seeing some stronger male companions, because before that I'd only seen New Who, I tend to like the male companions a little bit better because it lessens that idea of maybe there's a relationship, maybe someone's in love with somebody else. I don't like those. And you get that less with the male companions. They don't get sidelined like some of the other female companions like Polly always getting coffee or uh, Victoria turning into, hey, her scream is what's going to save the day. Uh. (laughs) You're going to have to have a male companion who would be able to last longer, especially in that era. She started out as such a great companion, too. So good. And they just just laid, they took her down Susan territory. And that was so sad. Yeah, without a doubt. It's interesting, Don, to that point, if you contrast Victoria against Zoe, we talked a lot as we were going through the show with Zoe, how they stay true to her character right through until when she leaves. Every story, she gets the opportunity to be extremely smart, whereas Victoria, as you say, starts off strong, but then turns into, Don, I think the term you like to use is peril monkey. By the Yes, end. peril monkey is indeed the <laughs> scientific term. <laughs> I, I was thinking that with Zoe, I think the writers had a huge advantage that she had such an unusual backstory mm. that provided them something to lean on. So it's like if they wanted to give her something to do, they're like, oh, let her do some technical know-how thing or something that shows her intelligence. Or they had the whole, what is it, the all head, no heart, all brains, no heart, internal conflict. They could play with that. They had something they could give her Yeah. So, you know, if they wanted to give her something. So it made it easier. So they had a basis to start off with her all the time. And it also worked with having Jamie not being necessarily the smarts. Although, again, I argue that he had street smarts when Zoe might not have. Mm -hmm. But you had the doctor being the doctor, crazy zany self. You had Zoe being smart. You had Jamie taking initiative and taking action. And that just trio worked so well. Agreed. And I wanted to talk about companions in the sense of Ben and Polly leave pretty early on in Troughton. And from that point on, for basically the next three seasons, we do not have a contemporary companion. The argument on the modern show is that you can't do historical companions or you can't do alien companions because your audience can't relate to that. But here's a three season (laughs) span where we have two historical characters and one futuristic character, and none of them are unrelatable. Since we we're already on Zoe. Talk a little bit more about her and about how having that futuristic character and her relationship with the Doctor, how that really affects the show. Particularly, and the things that I'm thinking of is in the Crotons, where the two of them are paired up for most of the show, and they're basically on equal. And I think that's really interesting. So talk a little bit more about Zoe, and then we'll get into the other two. I really love Zoe. I came to that realization when, I, when we were doing every serial, and on one of our podcast recordings, I kept bringing her up each time i'm like i think i'm in love with her i really do think i am she keeps popping up all the time when i really want to put a focus on her i think it's the crotons where the scene with the doctor where they had that last starfighter kind of like the test video game (laughs) sort of setup trope and her being successful with it and the doctor not at first and that little back and forth that rivalry of intelligence is what really just makes her such a wonderful wonderful companion for the doctor and had not really been done before before yeah. with other companions. So 
I mean, that's what sticks out with her for me. And what's really great, particularly with the Crotons, is we're so used to seeing the Doctor and Jamie as the double act. And here we get the Doctor and Zoe. And it shows at that point that Troughton can really pair up with any actor of sufficient caliber. It doesn't have to be Fraser Hines. And those scenes between the two are just wonderful. It's a very different type of humor than you're used to with the Doctor and Jamie. But it works on a totally different level. And it's probably the best thing about the Crotons. Yeah, it works really well because she's a fully-fledged character. She's not just someone that's there to get in trouble and have to be rescued. She can actively participate in the solution to whatever the serial is. She also has more costume changes than any other companion or character within any portion of Doctor Who that I've ever seen, and I will die on that hill. I don't think they ever went that far ever again. The other interesting thing that they could do other than her being intelligent and things of that nature was being able to call upon her actually being from the future. For example, in the Mind Robber, they bring in this character and it's from <laughs> yeah. like this like comic book from the 25th century, whichever century she was from. So you can play with a lot more because you can just randomly create new things and say, oh, this is from the future. And the doctor obviously knows about it and Zoe knows about it. But then like someone like Jamie or even someone who would be modern era would not. So it gives you the opportunity to build the world even more by giving something that the doctor and one of his companions know that no one else knows. Mm. So moving on to the other two companions that we have during this era, if you think back to Hartnell, they introduced a character called Katarina, who was a historical character. And five minutes after she walks in the door, they blow her out an airlock um, (laughs) because they decided that the character was unworkable. It just wouldn't work in the format that Doctor Who is. But then not long after that, we get Victoria and Jamie, both of whom are historical characters, maybe not as historical as Katarina was, but absolutely made those characters work. So Talk a little bit about the differences between Katarina and the two Troughton historical companions and why they work so well. So firstly, I want to say nemesis of the show, John Wiles, was completely wrong. with Katarina. We have a bonus episode coming out sometime soon where Julie and I reviewed Daughter of the Gods, a big Finnish audio play that has the second Doctor, Jamie and Zoe, but also the first Doctor, Stephen and Katarina. And what they do with Katarina's character in that story shows how they could have done her better and how she could have worked. So again, respectfully, John Wiles and co were wrong, but back on track to the Troughton era. I mean, (laughs) Yeah, they 100% show how they can make it work with those historical characters. Admittedly, Jamie and Victoria are not from quite as far back. They're from closer to the modern era by 200 years and 100 years respectively. But you get some nice little moments where Victoria is clearly out of her comfort zone in Tomb of the Cybermen wearing a, Mm. a shorter skirt than the Victorian sensibilities would allow. They reference it, but they don't allow that facet of their characters to dictate how they are across the show. I think Mm. it works a lot better and I have a bit more faith in that particular production team to make a decision and just stick with it. And what was interesting as well is having Jamie and Victoria be close enough in time, but also separated enough. There was a few instances where Victoria was able to say, well, Jamie, don't you know about this? Because it's something from the Victorian period, but not any earlier. So you got to have that fun little thing where we all know it. And then it's like, (laughs) oh, well, then how does one of them know it, not the other one know it? And then it's just because of those different time periods that they're from, which is really great. 
But again, what they did with Jamie and, and some of Victoria is they still gave them those opportunities of they get confused by new things. So like being confused by the airplanes or some of these other pieces of technology, but they move on from it. They're like, okay, that was weird. Okay, but let's move on with the story. And they don't just get stuck and confused and things like that. So I think that's how they can do these historical characters is just say, you know what? As long as they are strong in character and that they can just absorb things and just keep moving, then that's how you do it. Yeah, as long as they can learn and adapt, it's not a detriment to the story. It's an opportunity because you can tell the same boring story, be it base under siege or whatever, but you have these characters who are completely out of their element. That's a big storytelling opportunity to see how they react to these things that they're in no way used to. Agreed. Yeah, I think Don is right on it because with that, it provides an entirely different perspective. How we look at things now, obviously, is so much more different than how it was looked on many, 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 many centuries ago. So it provides a window into that perspective, which is interesting, and it provides something new. And it lets me have the questions of how does Jamie get into a spacesuit with his kilt on? <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> That's all this is. A review to a kilt. That's the whole thing. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There are a couple of instances where we could have had a new companion, like Samantha from The Faceless Ones, who would have been a contemporary character. Talk about some of those characters and who from this era might have become a good companion. I think I would have personally liked Fariah from mm. Enemy of the World. I really liked her. She was like that smart one who got close to the villain and kind of stayed there to kind of see what was going on. And that would be really interesting to see. You would have had someone of color who had become a really bigger name than just a side character who eventually died. <laughs> and I don't even know if that was... Was that modern Enemy of the World? Uh, near it was, future. Near yeah, future? Near future. Near yeah. future. Okay. But still contemporary enough because I think it was like the 80s or something. I think it was 2018 was when it was set. You're so. right. You're right. Because we were yeah. confused by why we didn't have certain things. Okay. <laughs> yep. <laughs> But she probably would have been my pick. There is, I think, in season five, even with the base under siege, I think there were several strong female characters who could have come in at any point in time and would have worked. Mm. I am terrible with names. <laughs> The one we kept coming back to during Enemy of the World was Griffin the Chef. Yes. Yes. <laughs> he never has to leave the TARDIS. He's just there to come in and give some banter between the Doctor and the companions and make them food and complain. Perfect. The one that it did seem like they were kind of lining up in the wheel in space was Dr. Gemma Corwin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, that's who I was trying to think of her name. I think she would have been fantastic. She would have been very similar to Zoe, but a bit older. You know, I think Zoe's meant to be about 16, whereas I think Dr. Corwin would be maybe closer to somewhere in her 30s. So it would have been a slightly different dynamic. Still someone very, very smart, but with a bit more experience. And that's who I keep coming back to. I always thought Carstairs would have been good from the war games. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He had kind of an Ian vibe to him that I enjoyed. Well, you would have had to bring, um, what was her name? Lady Jennifer. Yeah. Yes, you would her. Bring both of them. Because, again, they have the Ian Barbara feel. Don't want to break up that romance before it even starts. That's, That's true. Right. <laughs> They're a package deal, man. Okay, let's talk about Unit. We get the establishment of Unit in Doctor Who. Can you imagine a Hartnell story with Unit? 
that's sort of how much this show has changed over this amount of time. So talk about Unit and what new dynamic that gives to the show. I can imagine one, but it's mainly just him yelling and sulking, and I don't think it would be that good. 100%. <laughs> I can imagine Unit in the War Machines. Yeah. But yes, they're introduced in the Second Doctor's era, but we have the Web of Fear, which is a proto-unit story. They're not mm-hmm. called Unit yet, but we have that paramilitary force, and then we have the Invasion. But to me, Unit are more synonymous with the Pertwee era. Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. And this is sort of a segue into that. Yeah, the Invasion... I think was predominantly meant to introduce Unit and set the story on contemporary Earth in preparation for what they wanted to do with season seven when it came around. So you're kind of getting a a flavor of what's to come. But I don't think tone-wise, because they're used so sparsely in the Troughton era, that it has Mm -hmm. a huge amount of impact on that era. I don't think it has a large impact. But what I like what they did with Unit is they set it up as a very competent, well-run organization. (laughs) 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 Because in my experience, those things don't end well. Someone has too much of an ego and it just all falls to pieces. So what I enjoyed about it is that they were able to find someone who is likable and competent who runs it, Lethbridge Stewart. And that, you know, it's something that you can kind of get behind because they're all likable characters and they're not somewhat doing anything bad. Like sometimes you got some outside things where you're just like, man, can these just people go away because they're messing everything up. But the thing that I don't want to see, which based on the grumblings that I'm hearing in the next season, is that I don't want them to be there constantly. I don't want you to so be sorry. There. Mm. So sorry to hear that. I've heard <laughs> because I like the idea of them being a constant throughout Doctor Who, but not necessarily a every story they're going to be there. Wow, you have a couple of those kind of things to look forward to. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have an unpopular opinion about UNIT, and that is I feel like it just presents way too much military action filler scenes. It's fine. I know it's supposed to be exciting, but it just it feels like a lot of filler when we have a lot of extras running around firing machine guns, but we'll be getting a lot of that soon. (laughs) All right, we're kind of coming down to our last... 10 or so minutes. So I'm going to get a couple of questions and comments from viewers and get your responses to those. The first one is from Michael Phillips, who says that he always has seen only two Doctor archetypes, the Hartnell, which is the wizard type, and Troughton, the cosmic trickster. Every Doctor since then has been a blend of the two, variously emphasizing one or the other. So how do you respond to that? He is completely correct. Yes, everything is either basically one or the other, and they'll try to add something new when they can. Yeah, and I think the show tends to favor the cosmic trickster as opposed to the patrician wizard type. But yeah, there's normally an element of both of them in each Doctor. I can't disagree with that. I think that's all very true. I think even the closest to changing that is actually Jodie's Doctor. She's still kind of that like kind of cosmic kind of crazy, but also at the same time, she doesn't fall completely there. She doesn't really fit the wizard at all, um, honestly. I think she comes the closest of maybe mixing things up a little bit, um, and I don't th- necessarily think that's bad, but I think she comes the closest of being outside of those two types. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Riley, if you could disagree very hard just so we could get some contrast here, that would be great. (laughs) My friend Adam says that you are his favorite podcast. Yay, thank you, Adam. Thank you. Oh, I'm blushing on camera. I did a panel with Adam at the last Hulanta. Oh, cool. We love you, Adam. And and Bill says he's 
happy to finally see you listening to Watchers for a while and emails you and is glad to see what you look like. Okay, so Troughton is in the bag. He's like, put to bed. Oh. What are you looking forward to moving into the next Doctor? Full color is one of them, I'm sure. Yep. Am I looking forward to that, though? What a garish obscenity that is. <laughs> I would say I'm looking forward to ruffled shirts. It's difficult for me to say what I'm looking forward to since I know little to nothing about this era. So it's really just a looking forward to something new, but I'm not going to lie. I might go through a period of mourning because Jamie will no longer be there. I'm really looking forward to not having to go through any more missing episodes and picking which version go. we're going to watch and discuss <laughs> and all that. It's, it's nice having complete entertainment. And bubble wrap. Bubble wrap is coming soon, I'm sure, and I'm very excited about that. It's a little longer. <laughs> and more quarries. A lot more, more quarries. quarries. Oh, yeah. I'm specifically looking forward to season seven, which, you know, obviously I've seen before, but I'm looking forward to the radically different tone of the show. Mm. And season seven is one that I really, really enjoy. So I'm looking forward to revisiting that and hearing what the rest of my fine friends on this podcast think of it as we go through it. I think it may not be as universally popular as I would like it. Mm. Well, okay. On that note, three of you have seen Pertwee before. Do you want yes. to make predictions about how Julie's going to react <laughs> and if she's going to like it or not? Uh, she's going to complain in every episode that Jamie's not there. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Don. <laughs> I'm hoping you do, because that's just funny. Yeah, there'll definitely be an adjustment period. Well, we can have our new metric of scenes that would have been improved by Jamie's presence in them, and we can see how well the season stacks up by the end. <laughs> Very quickly, talk about the ones from the past three seasons that were your high water marks, because one of them is the only story that any one of you gave a 10 to. <laughs> but a couple of other yeah. ones got really close to that, but only one of yeah. them earned a 10. And that was me with The Mind Robber, which yeah. there's an element of nostalgia in, in The Mind Robber for me. It's one of the earliest Doctor Who stories I ever saw. I think I probably saw that when I was six years old. So for me, that one has a very special place in my heart. It's a great story. It's fun. It's weird in a way that the show hadn't done in several seasons. It's just fantastic. But yeah, I think between that, I think we rated The Enemy of the World really highly, The Invasion and The War Games. I think those yes. four mm -hmm. are our four high watermarks. I could wax poetic about Enemy of the World. Just the fact that you have Troughton playing the Doctor, you have Troughton playing the villain, and you have Troughton playing the Doctor pretending to be the villain. <laughs> you got him doing three different things, and he is phenomenal throughout the entirety of it. You have some really great side characters. You have the two episode arcs telling different types of stories, and it's just a lot of fun. And, you know, our favorite chef. <laughs> I also want to make sure that we mention Power of the Daleks, which oh, is yes. the first real episode you get with Troughton. He loses the phallic hat eventually, but it's there <laughs> and it's funny. And you also have just one of my personal all-time favorites, Tomb of the Cybermen, which mm, is yeah. mm -hmm. a Doctor Who doing a mummy movie. And it's it's yes. wonderful. Yeah, I mean, it's too, I mean, I would think like... Hmm. I mean, he covered all all the highlights. I absolutely adore the Mind Robber, and I'm glad that Don brought up the Tomb the Cybermen. I think we all really enjoyed the Macrotero as well. Mm -hmm. we? Yes, yes, no. yes yeah. we did. Oh yeah. So I, that had some quality. I thought you had a soft spot for the underwater menace. <laughs> I do. It has the best underwater choreography, and and uh, like it, I, I enjoyed that one. That's the one like 
I think it was asked before, which one lost could we get back? I, I want that one. Mm-hmm. Nothing in the world can stop so. me now. <laughs> <laughs> you know I love saying that. All right. Thank you all so much for doing this as part of Hulanta. We were scheduled to do this last weekend. I think it was last weekend. We would have done this anyway. And Hulanta was going to be last Saturday. And then my work schedule changed. So thank you for shifting forward a little bit and doing this with me here. So, Anthony, where can people find you if they would like to hear more of your fine podcast? We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you like to get your podcasts. Plus, our website is watches4d.podbean.com. And then you can also find us and follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Our handle on each of them is at watches4d. So drop us a follow on those. We tend to post what we are releasing and and occasionally post some fun memes and so on related to the era of the show that that we're in. So our social media uh, is something else we, we recommend checking out. Absolutely. So the gang is just about to move into the 1970s with full color, a different doctor, a different companion, a different production team. It's all new. So you definitely want to be on the watcher's train as it moves into the next station, which was a weird analogy. I don't know where that came up. <laughs> it's, anyway. uh, it's related to the web of fear, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys very much. We're going to cut it off here. Thank you, audience, for watching. We will see everybody next time. Thank you guys so much. Thank you Bye. very much. Thanks, everybody. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, Alan Seiler, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, A Review to a Kilt, was recorded live at Hulanta Virtual TARDIS 2021 on Saturday the 29th of May 2021 and is dedicated to the memory of Jackie Lane, aka Dodo Chaplet, and friend of the podcast Gwen Chadwick Brown. May they both rest in peace. If this is your first time listening in, all of our previous episodes are available on your favorite podcasting app. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watches4D, and you can also email us at Watches4D at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All three of those things really do help the show. And always remember, if you love men in kilts as much as Julie, then the Trouton era is definitely for you. So next time, can we all be represented by puppets? Because I think that would be much funnier.